This is CliffCentral.com. Welcome to the Understanding Cancer Podcast, a series of key conversations that bring together all you need to know about cancer, empowering you with information and knowledge. This 10 podcast series is brought to you by Discovery. My name is Sonia Booth. Each week, we chat to some of the country's foremost experts in the fields of health and wellness for cancer prevention, as well as in cancer treatment. We are bringing you fascinating insights relevant to every person out there. Today, our fifth episode focuses on cancers that affect men. And I am joined in studio by urologist and male sexual health expert, Professor Shingai Mutambira. Also with me, our head of urology at Steve Biko Academic Hospital, Dr. Evelyn Moshokwa, and surgical gastroenterologist, Dr. Dean Lutron. Welcome. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Sonia. Can we talk about the important cancers that affect men? Okay, I think I'll take that. Um, first of all, I think uh, the listeners must understand that cancer is basically just your cells overgrowing themselves. And every organ in the body can have cancers, be it blood, be it skin, be it whatever. But if you were to look at the incidences of cancers, the commonest uh, cancer that men get is skin cancer, actually. But the thing with skin cancer is that most of them aren't really that nasty. But if you do get moles or other things, they should be addressed as well, because there are some nasty ones uh, like, like melanoma and stuff, which can kill you. But then the second most common cancer would be prostate cancer. And uh, prostate, the prostate is a little gland which sits just below the bladder. It's around the pipe for passing urine, which is also the pipe for ejaculation, which we call urethra. And what its job is, is um, the testicles produce sperm. The sperm travel through a tube, some tubes called the vas to the area of the prostate. Uh, and because most of what a guy ejaculates is not sperm, it's stuff made by the prostate in another gland called the seminal vesicle. And it's also the commonest site for cancers. The third most common cancer would be lung cancer, but uh, lung cancer kills more men than prostate cancer. And then colorectal cancer, I think in our country, Dean, if I'm not mistaken, is probably number four, three or four maybe, but uh, it's also one of the biggest killers. It kills, uh, we, stage for stage, it kills more than for prostate cancer. That, 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 that's true, and I suppose um, we, we, we also interested specifically um you know, in, in men, because there's been a, a lot of attention pays, paid to something like breast cancer. You know, I always joke that everyone wears pink ribbons for breast cancer, but no one wears brown ribbons for colon cancer. <laughs> and, and that often seeing yourself as part of a smaller group allows you to pay more attention to something. So whilst breast cancer or lung cancer may or may not kill more people overall, the, the, there's something to do about focusing on, on, you know, smaller subsets of the population. And specifically because, um, we as people who specialize in more male cancers feel a bit short-changed by all the attention given to breast cancer where there's a whole group of cancers that we see men with fairly advanced disease from, which they could be spared a lot of heartache from. And that's why we think it's important to focus on these. I think to add on that, we should mention the issue of uh, bladder cancers, which are also quite, yeah. you know, prevalent. And what happens as well is testicular cancers, especially for the younger men. So usually they would present with painless symptoms, and it's worth mentioning so that people don't 
basically ignore the symptoms. Yeah. And I think one of the things like you're saying, Evelyn, is that bladder cancer is, uh, is relatively common, but it's also one of the cancers which is very well recognized to be related to the lifestyle habit of smoking. And, uh, lung cancer is the, is the leading killer as far as cancers worldwide for guys. And it's basically the majority of guys who get lung cancer would have been smokers. And I mean, you've just mentioned lifestyle. And often when men are referred to, I mean, we, we're going to be talking about screening just now. But I mean, poor lifestyle regarding men, risky behaviors. So there are a couple of things regarding lifestyle. There's certain cancers where there's a clear association with lifestyle and the disease. Um, as Shingo mentioned about um, bladder and lung cancer and smoking. But then colorectal cancer, understanding the specific risk factors is a little softer and, you know, is it too much fat in the diet? Is it not enough fiber in the diet? Is it not enough vitamin D? The exact risk factors haven't been elucidated as well, but certainly, you know, leading a poorer quality lifestyle in terms of diet and exercise certainly has an effect. But one of the other things where I think lifestyle has a really big impact as well is if you are diagnosed with something and need treatment, Mm. treatment is like running Comrades Marathon. And the fitter you come into the treatment, the fitter you'll come out. So even if you you get a disease where um, there's not a clear correlation between your lifestyle and and that disease, if you're in good physical health, your survival is certainly much, much better. And there are many reasons to live a, a good, clean lifestyle in terms of diet and exercise, but we find it very frustrating as doctors where we see people who really haven't abused their bodies on any level. They've always eaten well, they've always done exercise, and they just look at you and say, why me? And I actually should agree with you there, Dean, on the lifestyle. Like in prostate cancer, you know, there's quite controversy as to smoking and the cause. But it has been found that, you know, there's a strong association between the high-risk prostate cancer and smoking. And also treatment outcome. Patients who smoke, the treatment outcome is usually bad or poor. So advising the person, even upon diagnosis, to stop smoking actually has got you know, beneficial role in the long term. Yeah. I think what Dean, you're saying is complete. I think the listeners must really understand is that the majority of cancers have very few symptoms or mild symptoms before they get really nasty. So it's about taking good health, taking good control of your health, but also about making sure as an individual, if you are worried or you have a specific problem, you get it checked out. A lot of our patients like this idea of some wonder pill that's going to protect you. And I, just to go back to health and lifestyle, there was a trial completed in 2007. It was one of the most expensive trials done in the States. I think it was $1.4 billion. Uh, and it's been published, but most people don't get, know the, the outcomes. And they basically, they had three arms over a 14-year period where one was normal diet, one was normal diet and exercise, and one was normal diet and, and omega-dose vitamin because it was actually run by a vitamin company. The owner is actually a urologist. And the outcomes showed clearly that the one which came out worst was the megadose vitamin. And the reason why when they did the analysis was because we know that you need like zinc and calcium and stuff in your body. But the thumb suck of 500 milligrams of zinc, it might be overkill as well. So that's the, the that was the one that came out worst. And the one that came out best by far 
was diet and exercise, normal exercise, not too much exercise. It decreased heart attack, uh, heart attacks by 50%, decreased diabetes by 30%, decreased cancers across the board. And we're not talking just about prostate or by 30%. There's no drug. I'm not saying that, but the point is if you just take some small changes in your life, it can make a huge difference long time down the way. And I should just to add on that, you know, it can sometimes be a bit confusing to the patient who will come see a urologist and then I'm discussing this diet, for instance, for prostate. Then they go to the cardiologist, you know, something to add on that. So what I like actually advising the patient, especially on lifestyle, is that most of the time, what is good for your heart? would be good for your exactly. kidneys, would be good for your prostate and for your sexual functioning. Mm-hmm. It's important to realize that what we are talking about is within one body. Mm-hmm. And does having more sex protect you or lessen the risk of you getting prostate cancer? And why is that? Okay. Uh, that, 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 again, remember when we're looking at data, we look at lots of different ways of looking at data. And there is some data to show that if you, the more sex you have for guys, and for women, by the way, because sex is a form of exercise. If you do 15 minutes of sex every two times, two times a week, you can burn off the equivalent of a Big Mac McMeal every month. But the point is, so sex is a form of exercise. But the one of the th- theories because of that why we think that guys with uh, prostate cancer are less likely to have prostate cancer if they're having more sex, and that's about two times a week. That's what the, the most of the trials were looking at, is because we know that the majority of cancers are based on inflammation, which is white blood cells, things going into your cells, causing damage, releasing chemicals which can damage it. And if you're emptying out these cells, it seems to improve it. Although there was one interesting part to the trial in Australia. They actually said that no, the the the, the more sex you have the less likely you can get prostate cancer but also if you are married you're less likely to get prostate cancer as well but most of my married friends say they have less sex now than they did when they were married so i'm not <laughs> sure how to get, get my head about that part and now we're moving on to screening how do you screen for all these different types of cancers okay so the concept of screening is one that says we look for something before it finds us and we believe that earlier detection can save lives, either because uh, you find it actually earlier or you find it before it's not not cancer yet. And I'll talk about colorectal screening. Color, colorectal cancers, so when I talk about colorectal cancers, that's co- cancers of the colon and the rectum, which is sort of the last 15 centimeters. So colorectal cancers don't just come out of nowhere. They start from a little polyp, which is a little abnormal growth of a few cells. And those cells slowly accumulate a number of genetic changes until it's a full-blown cancer. Now, from a little polyp until a full-blown cancer, that takes about five to eight years to develop. And those little polyps, they shed off a few cells and there can be a bit of blood or abnormal DNA in those, in those polyps, those abnormal growths. So what you can do is the current recommendations are to start screening at about age 50, although there's a good suggestion to start at 45 or 40. And you can do an annual stool test looking for blood in the stool. And if there is blood, one can take it further. So annual stool testing is the first thing that we recommend. It is cheap to do. It is easy to do. It's not a big deal. The other option is to do a colonoscopy where you drink a few liters of a profoundly strong laxative. You clean out your bowel it wasn't dramatically. It <laughs> <laughs> wasn't that bad for me. Either. <laughs> um, um, you, you drink this very strong laxative and then what you do is you have a light anesthetic and they put a thin tube up your bum all the way through the colon, the entire colon, and they actually 
we look on a screen for any polyps or precancerous growths and we can remove them at the same time. And if you have a normal colonoscopy, it only needs to be done once a decade. So as unpleasant as it may be, every 10 years is enough. Now, if you're just checking the stool for, for blood, that's annual, but that's not a big deal. But certainly the main ways we screen for colorectal cancer is stool testing and colonoscopy. What we are not talking about is patients with a strong family history of malignancies. Those are a totally separate group of patients where we treat their risk very differently. We're just talking about the normal man on the streets. I should talk about like for prostate cancer, you know, the issue of screening. I mean, there's quite a lot now debate going on. And just to clarify some of the things, it's the issue of screening programs, you know, are not really recommended, but if you are looking at individualized screening, is the way to go. Why are we saying that in our context, you know, in South Africa, we should look at the time when people present? It's usually late. We have not experienced what we call stage migration. Stage migration is where cancer is diagnosed early, meaning that it's stage one. We are still diagnosing over 60% of prostate cancer being advanced, meaning stage four. Most of the time. So that is the reason why our recommendation, which we even have on the Prostate Cancer Foundation now, is that we are looking at the age of 40, you know, in people who, especially in black patients and with strong family history. And then from there, we are looking at 45. Why are we mentioning this? It's because we have to look at our ability to deal with the numbers as well in both public and private. It is very important. And we should also talk about the dichotomy in public and private, the presentation. Mm-hmm. It's not the same. In public, we still see people who are not coming for screening, but who are coming for diagnosis in retention, struggling, paralyzed. And that is why we are saying we have to look at it in our context. Yeah. And I think what Dean and Evelyn are talking about is that we're not talking to that everybody must just go for screening for every cancer. Because I mean, there's some, some people, smokers should get x-rays once in a while. People with family history of colorectal cancer should get it. People with family history of, of prostate cancer or breast cancer should also be getting it. But it's on an individual basis where you're taking care of your own health. You want to make sure you don't run into problems. So we're not saying everybody needs to go for every test. But I think Dean also mentioned something very important that we, and especially in, even our colleagues, our GPs, one of the things we must remember to ask is about family history, about their hereditary, because we know that there's some a lot of cancers, which are more than we used to think, that will have some underlying genetic thing. Not that many are, are only purely because of the genetic aspect, but it does predispose them. And if you do have a family history of specific cancers, you should be getting yourself seen a bit more frequently and possibly a bit earlier. And I mean, how, how are diagnoses made for all these different cancers? So, in terms of of colorectal cancer, if you go, if you have some symptoms, so the symptoms people would generally have of colorectal cancer is anemia. So they just feel flat. You know, they've got no energy. They go to the GP, they have a blood test, and the hemoglobin is low, and there's evidence that they've been losing blood. So anemia is one way of presenting. Um, and a change in bowel habits, constipation, diarrhea, um, just a bit of an upset tummy. And the problem is with the colon and the rectum is they've got a very limited repertoire of telling us they're unhappy. So you could have, you know, a bad meal and you, or you could have cancer and the symptoms may be very similar, um, you know, of a bit of a runny tummy, etc. Um, about, 
it's, it's difficult to give you an exact number, but a fair number, 10, 20% of patients will present with spread to distant organs, to their liver, to their lungs, and then they've got abdominal pain and a cough and that sort of thing. But most patients with colorectal cancer, if they present with symptoms, it'll be either on the basis of bleeding from the tumor and an anemia or um or obstructive symptoms, either constipation and diarrhea. And generally a patient like that will have symptoms, will do a, a colonoscopy, actually see it with our eyes and take a biopsy. And that little piece is sent off to the lab and they confirm that it, that it is cancer. And then the whole treatment path would start thereafter. I think, Evelyn, you were touching on this uh, thing about prostate cancer and the fact that we get so many uh, patients which are already stage 4 or advanced disease. And I think the, the, the one of the biggest problems we have is that most guys don't realize that the symptoms for prostate cancer are almost never there until it's very advanced. Yes, I think so. Uh, most of them, like I'm saying, they may come, you know, being paralyzed, for instance, yeah. or when they are completely blocked they can't pass urine that is what we see but the easy things that we usually do is you know a blood test for PSA that is prostate specific antigen and also a rectal exam which some people are basically very scared of Mm. but like Dean is saying that you know one of the things we do is occult blood test that is actually another opportunity when a rectal exam is done to check for, you know, occult blood test because one has to look at the glove, you know, after doing the rectal exam. Mm. And what I think the overall, you know, person out there should be aware of is that this is what we do every day and we'll do it within your comfort zone and we do it because we care. So once somebody can be aware of the issue that we do it because we care, then it actually makes a big difference. From there, we can move on to decide if the rectal exam is abnormal or the PSA is suspicious. We don't always use the first PSA, but if prostate-specific antigen is above 100, I'm giving just an example, we usually will go on and do a prostate biopsy. So we always go for histologically you know, proven diagnosis because in the long run, it makes a difference in the management of the person. Yeah, I think that's the important thing. We have to remember that we, we just looking at something doesn't always mean that it's cancer. So lumps and bumps don't always mean cancer. They could because cancer basically it means that the the, the the cells are out of control. They're going to start spreading and doing funny, funny things too. Although that's again not exactly true as well. But the thing is, I think when we, especially for prostate cancer, is that just like with colorectal, there are very few symptoms that you get before you get prostate cancer, and you, that's why we have to do the digital rectal examination to feel the prostate because most of them are actually starting on the outside part of the prostate and you can feel little lumps and bumps sometimes there. It's not a difficult thing. And the guys, if, you, if you're looking at your for, for general screening for other things, remember that if the, the, it's very difficult to pick up lung cancers until they're quite advanced, although you can get coughing of blood and stuff like that. Usually if you want to pick it up relatively early, they're going to have to have uh, x-rays and stuff like that. Testicular cancer, pretty simple to pick up. Usually it's a little lump or bump in the testicle. Even the partner can pick it up. When you've got bladder cancer, it's usually a bit of blood in the urine as well, colorectal, blood in the stool. Generally, and if you're just feeling offish, like the team was saying about anemia, tiredness and that sort of thing, you're just not feeling great about life, get yourself seen. There are lots of other things that can be picked up as well that could you could be treatable. You know, with, with, with women, I think I speak for a lot of women that um, it's become the norm for us when you're in the shower to check your breasts for lumps. Can men also 
check their testicles while in the shower or lying down watching TV? Yes, of course. I mean, like Chinga was saying, even the partner can check because the issue is that it's usually a painless lump. But most people will be like, no, maybe I hit a desk. Like I said, with testicular cancer, it's usually the younger men that gets affected. So they may be like, maybe it's when I was playing soccer. Once you feel a lump that is unusual, once one testis is bigger, you know, than the other one. And at present, I should also just add something that in patients who, who are, you know, HIV, you know, reactive, it, TB can mimic, you know, a cancer of the testis. But what is important is just go to your, your local, you know, healthcare giver. They'll have a look at you and a, a sauna in over 90% of cases, can actually give us an idea what is happening, which is painless to do. Do it in the rooms. So it's worth checking once you feel something unusual. But before you make all the guys rush out, because every guy always comes and says, my one testicle is bigger than the other. Mm. It's change in the, in the size. Yes, so yes. one testicle might be smaller than the other one. That's not a big drama. Yes. Right? Okay. And then now as, as, as specialists, where do you draw the line? I mean, you have a patient that's presenting a case. Where do you draw the line? You want to give them the hard truths, the facts, the statistics without scaring them away from treatment. So I, I think for a lot of cancers, certainly colorectal and um, um, perhaps the others as well, is that patients with early disease we can do a huge service to. Patients with advanced disease, we can do a huge service to. So just because you've got cancer, it's not a death sentence. Of patients worldwide, with of all patients died with colorect, diagnosed with colorectal cancer, about two-thirds plus of them are alive after five years. So the, the treatments options that we have are are great and there's a reason for a lot of optimism now certain malignancies really our treatments don't make a huge difference but that's really a small fraction of the cancers that exist most of them we can treat a patient with good results without just totally destroying their quality of life so where do we draw the line certainly there's some patients who should be treated in a hospice type of environment palliative care end of life care etc but most patients can be treated with curative intent. And not that we can cure all patients, but we can treat patients with curative intent. And the quality of the treatments we have today, both surgery, radiation, uh, chemotherapy, the, the techniques and technologies are just magical at the moment. And what we can do, minimally invasive surgery, more focused radiation, targeted chemotherapy, all of these things really allow us to treat people without um, – destroying their lives at the same time. Yes, and I think the current availability, you know, of treatment options allows us to custom make, mm -hmm. you know, for the patient, you know, that we see. It makes a big difference. But one of the things that we do, we stage every cancer, mm -hmm. you know, the staging that we do use. All that is telling is, is it localized or has it spread? Very interesting, especially those, you know, who may be interested, like for prostate cancer, we've got what we call nomograms, you know, where somebody can, you can do it with your, once diagnosed, we can go with the person, we check on the, what are the chances on the nomograms of cure and all of, so it's quite interesting actually, because you give evidence-based type of treatment for an individual. Yeah. And I think what, 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 what Dean and Evelyn are, are alluding to even more is about the fact that each patient can be individually treated from stage to stage. And it's all about their quality of life, number one. 
and the quality of life of their part, their partner or whoever or the family that's around them as well. And I think one of the biggest problems for guys is that we almost always are going to go and just get ourselves checked out without informing people, not doing this, the other. When we get there, we think that no, everyone, if we come for colorectal cancer, the guy, I'm going to become impotent. So I'm not going to be doing this treatment. There are so many quality of life things we can deal with, but I also think that the emotional side and the fact that we need to get our people, other people around to assist us is very important for guys out there. Up to 80% of men wait for medical symptoms to mm. escalate or to become advanced. Is it about the ego? Why should I get a prostate cancer t- test or check? Yeah, I'm, well, I'm, I'm a guy. You're, you're, you're. <laughs> okay, I, think, okay, I think one of the things which I know is that, you know, if it's working, why fix it? Mm. You know, that kind of a motto, which doesn't work with one's health. You know, that yeah. it doesn't, and I think one of the things we do see, for instance, when you're talking about car service, I mean, service in your car, it doesn't have to be broken for you to take it to be checked, mm-hmm. for instance. So it is important to be aware that we, with our bodies, should handle ourselves better than cars. <laughs> I mean, and I think a lot of it stems simply from ignorance that people don't know what they should be doing. And whilst it's not pleasant, you know, to have all these invasive things, a lot of people just are not aware that these are the important things to do. And across the board, the, 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 the public, a lot of doctors, um, we, there's just a, a lot of uh, things that everyone needs to be aware of to, to know this is what I should test for and this is what I should do. And if people understand that this doing these things can literally save their lives, yeah. it's, it's well worth doing. True. And and I mean now with the current usage, you know, of internet, for instance, where people are going for Doctor Google, Doctor Yahoo, self-diagnosing, and all of that, it's actually not enough. Yeah. Okay, it's good to get a bit of information, but it will not be as best as consulting with uh, somebody who has got more knowledge, you know, who, which is acquired over years. Yeah, and I think the one of the things to remember for guys is that. Particularly is that of the 13, 14 leading causes of death in the population, 13 happen in more in men than in women. And the biggest problem for us is that we don't take our health seriously. We are more risky in our behaviors. We're less likely to take information. I mean, there was good data to show that uh, from the, up, up to the age of 16, females and males have similar health outcomes. And the main reason when they got in that study was that they said it was happening is because up to 16, the parents were in control of both the children. They'd force both of them. After 16, 17, the guy says, I'm a macho chap. I can wander around. I can do whatever. And that's when we start dying more as guys. So I think we just need to take our health more seriously, to yeah, be but honest. I think the other thing which is interesting now is that I see lots of uh, females making appointment mm. for their partners. Mm. I think that is quite, you know, commendable. And even coming with, because it helps even for follow-up, you know, and compliance. But also the issue of people being too busy, you know, to see a doctor. And now most of health practitioners work with appointments. So it doesn't mean you're going to be on that queue for too long. You can have an option of having an appointment, being there and being out, you know. A lot of the treatments for the male, the male cancer, which are largely in the pelvis, um, can have a real dramatic effect on sexual functioning, urinary continence, and fecal continence. And this idea that you might have to wear nappies or won't be able to get an erection anymore is too scary to look for the idea of testing. And the thing is, is that often if we detect these things early, the ability to do 
organ-preserving treatments and function-preserving treatment is much higher because we don't have to treat as aggressively. So people are scared of looking for these things because of potentially needing to poo into a bag or not being able to get an erection. But the way you can prevent all those horrible things of the sexual dysfunction of the bladder and bowel dysfunction is by early treatment, not ignoring the symptoms. Yeah, in fact, I, I think just to scare the guys out there, for prostate cancer, if we pick it up late, the main stay of treatment is to get rid of the man chemical testosterone moving the testicles because that shrinks the cancer. And you're going to get problems, but that's when you're in severe pain. Get yourself seen early. Just pick up if you're feeling a little bit offish or your partner tells you, listen, I need you. I think you, it's about time you went in or your father tells you, no, listen, I have, uh, your mother had breast cancer. Maybe you should get yourself checked out for prostate cancer. Just do it. It's not that difficult. And by the way, it's not because it's not for us. Uh, Dean, what you're saying about the 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 the, the, the uh, wallet biopsy. Most of this can be done by our GPs and other health professionals. You don't have to go to a specialist to get most of these things done. And, and, and I mean, Doctor Lutheran. I mean, I, I mentioned ego because we often hear of guys saying, "I would rather die than yeah, have my sexual." I mean, I've, I've had patients who've made decisions regarding cancer treatments be guided by their sexual performance and anything that can that can that can affect their ability to get an erection they would rather die than forgo sexual enjoyments now i'm not one to judge that say that's a good or bad decision but i am one to say that this this particular patient could have avoided all this drama had he done appropriate screening as he should have yeah but that is one of the reasons why we tailor make or custom make a treatment you know where we can inform the person what is cancer control and quality of life and have an informed decision than sitting and not knowing, you know, what is happening or even being afraid of screening, for instance, because you are thinking your erectile functioning may be affected. And, and what's the role of what we would consider first care or first contact, the GPs? In academic institutions, we get referrals from our GPs and from family practitioners beforehand because going straight to the specialist often we will miss something we'd like to think that we're very clever but the point is that the GPs are really so they've got such a wider base of, of knowledge that they can actually direct most of our patients but they must also keep in mind that there's also those issues that they, they could they could run into trouble if they don't take symptoms and signs seriously um I, I think the the GP as gatekeeper is very important because you could be feeling low because you're a newly diagnosed diabetic or you could be feeling low because you're anemic from a bleeding tumor and you need someone to look at the entirety of you. And certainly I'm seeing, you know, when I, when I log in, certainly for some of my patients, the discovery portal now, it's certainly giving an alert that uh, you should have a flu vaccine. And slowly these alerts I'm seeing, you know, as a, 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 as a, as a discovery client as well, you know, you can get points if you do this, this and, and this. So there is that reminder about uh, what, what to do. And, you know, just while we're talking, you know, as we're aware there, I don't know if, I think South Africa has the dubious honor of being the most unequal country economically in the world now. And all of us are straddling, very, very different environments of patients who are spending two hours to get access to healthcare and then patients who are on top medical plans who are just the worried well who are over testing and we straddling the, 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 these patients, which can be very bizarre sometimes. Um, you know, you spend a day doing, you know, 
gee whiz stuff and then a day just calming people down when nothing's wrong with them. But there's a happy medium, and I think an educated patient understanding what is the appropriate testing to do, what is reasonable, and it doesn't need to be done too frequently. And I think, I mean, like what you say with the GP, if you look at the numbers as well, you know, in terms of a doctor ratio to the population, the GPs, the numbers are much more higher. So first in line, so it cannot be overlooked. It should be actually overemphasized that the GP has got a pivotal role in the management, in the early detection. And I should also mention the focus now that we have is more towards health than disease. So we need that for primary health care, for education, and having the GP up front, it's actually much, much more important. Yeah, and especially and the clinics, I must mention the unsung heroes here are nurses and nurse practitioners. Yes. They are brilliant in, in both private and in government practice. And I think they do, they're unsung because they, 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 we usually consider doctors to be the one to go to, but often they can give excellent health advice. They treat you the diabetes. They treat, they, they'll pick up signs and symptoms much better than some, even doctors sometimes. So I think all of us, it's going to be holistic. It's all about yes. the practitioners, but it's also about your own family. It's about your general health. There was a there was a lovely study looking at how men complied with the advice given to them by a doctor, mm-hmm. and their compliance went up significantly if they were accompanied by their spouse to the doctor's appointment. <laughs> yep. So, so if you have someone saying, you know, shaking their wagging their finger at you, saying the doctor told you to do X, Y, and Z, I'm booking this for you, I'm doing that for you, is that you know men have a responsibility to their families. You know, we're very happy buying insurance. We're very happy, well, not happy, but we do it because we know it's important. This is equivalent kind of insurance, and you know, to see to see an an old man being looked after by doting children from a problem that could have been prevented is is heartbreaking. And that's the irony there, because I mean, you, you mentioned in life insurance, uh, he has a man who's just couldn't be bothered with sitting at a doctor's room for an hour waiting for a screening. But at the same time, if he's diagnosed late, chances are he's going to be dying sooner than expected. And therefore the, 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 the caregiver is not around to look after the family. So that there's an irony there, right? Correct, correct. And, and sometimes people cannot really cope much well with the role changes that happen. Mm-hmm. You know, when the breadwinner, you know, now actually needs a lot of attention, it becomes quite a big shift. Mm-hmm. So it is better to actually be proactive, to work, have the support, you know, in the initial phase. And I mean, I, I think by now we all agree that um, men are diagnosed very late, mm-hmm. right? And this obviously gives worry to treatment complications. Mm. That's affecting the mortality rates, which yes. I, I can yeah. only assume it's, it's higher yeah. in men. I think, the, we, as Dean was saying, stage, we, why we do these staging from stage one to four for all cancers is essentially because the earlier you pick it up, generally, the more likely you're going to survive it. And generally, there's less impact on your general quality of life, self-image and things like that that's going to happen to you. So if, for example, like we, we with, for prostate cancer, the majority of prostate cancers worldwide, not in South Africa because we've got our own statistics, but worldwide are cancers which aren't nasty cancers. They're just sitting around. They probably won't do much, but we aren't quite sure. So we follow them up and about 50% of the patients, we don't 
actually cut them. We don't give them radiation. We don't give them hormones. We just observe them, watch them. Every three months, six months, we check them out. And if we do that, they can have such great health-related quality of life. And if we do get a cancer that's nasty, it starts becoming a nasty one, we, we can pick it up quickly, we treat it quickly, and the guy's going to be better. So I think if we're going to be looking at, at your general health and your be it sexual health, which is the biggest issue for most guys all the time, or about the, the incontinence and or fecal incontinence or urinary incontinence like Dean was talking about, the earlier you pick it up, the better. The best way to pick it up is to have individualized screening, particularly if you're at risk. And and just to add on that, it's not only the time, it's also the cost mm. of treatment. Mm. You know, in early disease, the cost is much more lower. Mm. But once it's advanced, the cost is higher and most of the time will also cost a life. Yeah. And the cost is not only about the treatments, it's mm. also about hospice, about your your family life, about the, the fact that you're going to be losing life years where you could be supporting your family. So I think guys really need to, especially, although women, is that they need to really be checking themselves out. For, for, for many high-powered men, once these things happen, they just want to get going, sort it out, do it now. <laughs> And it's more important to make the correct decisions than quick decisions. And very few cancers need to be operated on urgently. Most of them have been there for months to years. And it's important to get good information if you want second opinions to get second opinions. But there's no urgency. And there's a big thrust in terms of a lot of modern oncology is to keep surgery for the end rather than operate at the beginning. Sometimes we give radiation first or chemotherapy first. So for many cancers, it's, 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 we take it, you know, this is a five day game, not a T20. Um, And, and, and it can be frustrating for people and very disempowering. You know, you, you're meant to be in the office every day, but then at three o'clock, you've got to go to the hospital for radiation and sit, sitting with all the, the, the people, you know, who are, are looking like they're dying, but you, you feeling quite, you feeling quite well. And a sense of urgency regarding cancer treatment. And I see it in a lot of the men that are, that are treat because they're used to running the show is often quite harmful. Yeah, and I think we we haven't touched on it too much, but one of the biggest killers, not only because it causes heart attacks and cancers, is stress. And the, there's so many guys out there who are stressing about their finances, stressing about this, that, and the other. We know that they, the chemicals that are actually damaging you, causing you to get heart attacks, strokes, cancers, and various other things. And once you get into the situation where you have a cancer, there's even more stresses that are going to come up. And we have to try to balance that because the point is that, like Dean was saying, we, the majority of cancers, if we, you don't always have have to do something about them but the fact of you know where it is and what's happening at least you can get some follow-up and know what's what would be the course that it might happen yeah i mean i with i should just you know summarize what we're saying because i agree with you so much mm-hmm. that in the diagnosis and treatment of cancer it's not a drive-through simple for simple guys <laughs> do, do, you, do you have any tips i mean or, or tricks that you if i can call it tricks uh, to that will encourage guys to have screening i think from my side i think i always tell my the chap said it's not just about age it's not just about it if you what you should be probably doing is that if you feel something funny get yourself checked out if you don't feel something too funny I think every year, at least go to your nurse, get them to check your blood pressure, get them to do a pinprick of sugar, check what's going on with that. And then just once, and literally it takes five minutes of your time, even if you're thinking that you've got millions of times. If you, if you want to make the biggest difference for your health, it's just to decrease four things. 
decreased number of calories in your diet. It's not about really much what you're eating. It's the quantities that we have a problem. A bit of exercise and not much. I mean, the, the randomized control trial from Birmingham showed that you have to do 12 months, 12 minutes of exercise per month because it's just high intensity. You don't have to do too much. Decreasing the amount of stress, huge amount, and also just the most important social thing to not to smoke. And I'd like to talk about hormone therapies and side effects. <laughs> okay, I'll leave it to you. Just... <laughs> well, okay. I think we remember that the hormones are important in a lot of aspects. And hormones, are there are so many different hormones. But the ones we're probably talk, alluding to with the men is the man chemical testosterone. Uh, it is important for our sexual function, but it's also important for our hair, or for our muscles, for our general well-being. And I think if you, if you, it's, there's so many other aspects that are important for it as well, including general phys- psychological health. But I think the bigger worry is that if you d- do have to go on and androgen deprivation for prostate cancer, there's significant side effects, not so Evelyn. Yes, of course. I mean, we know what testosterone does to a man, like you say. We see it from the early age, you know. A girl child and a boy child will not really behave the same way. Mm-hmm. So what happens now when we withdraw the testosterone? The issue is one of the reasons why we do that is because prostate cancer cells, you know, there are those that are hormone dependent or that are hormone responsive. So when we offer this espaliation, meaning that it's in advanced disease already, uh, it helps a lot, you know, to cause what we call apoptosis. That is actually increasing the cell death, you know, of the cancer cells. So by doing that, the issue is that it has got overall body effects, what we call systemic effects, meaning that the muscle bulk, the mood changes. So those side effects are there. And for some people, just the thinking, you know, of hormone treatment, which may be either surgical or it may be through a medical treatment. To them, it may be something that is beyond acceptance. Yeah, and I think we, are, we when we when we consider that breast cancer, one of the treatments are hormonal as yes. well, similar to pros. And one of the biggest issues for a lot of guys is going to be the mood changes, but also hot flashes and things. And I think it just goes to show that, we, we, as Evelyn was saying earlier, that everything is so holistic. We, we might consider ourselves men and women, different things, but we've still got so many different things that are important. Even if we know that some some other types of cancer. Uh, bladder cancers, some other, uh, even some forms of lung cancer. If you get rid of androgen as well, it also seems to improve the outcomes for some. I think we have to just recognize that we're holistic beings. We have yes. to be, take ourselves more healthy. It, it, it's quite remarkable what's happened to our approach to cancer in the last 50 years. 50 years ago, the question was, are you going to survive the cancer or not? Mm. Okay. And you should be happy if you're alive. <laughs> now the discussion isn't about survival. It's about survival with good quality of life. So our questions with all these cancers isn't about are you going to survive. It's what's your quality of life going to be. And we see how this field has developed so much in women and breast cancer, where there's this idea of cancer surgery and concurrent reconstructive surgery, either at the same time or a second stage, because there's an understanding that to a woman's self-image, the idea of uh, healthy looking and feeling breasts is very important. And that's no less important to men, to be able to function normally socially, you know, in terms of your bladder and your bowel working working normally and then to be you know functional sexually in your private life and the strategies we have now are being measured and being implemented quite dramatically and even on patients with more advanced diseases even if we cause damage to uh, bladder bowel sexual functioning 
what we have to offer our patients in terms of their quality of life is meaningful. But the number of people who just don't say, ask, can you write me a script for something to help me with my erection, with my libido, you know, all these things. Not everything works for everybody, but there's a lot of help for most people. Yeah, and I think just to add on that is an issue of fertility, you know, mm. in some minutes when we're talking of hormonal cause, we know what happens with the uh, testosterone, the impact, you know, on the general, you know, aspects that we mentioned, but also fertility. Because for some men, you find that he just recently got married, you know, He's planning to have children. Now he's got cancer. What now? What about, you know, you know, having kids? The decisions are very important. But what is important is when discussing with the health practitioner, the options of, uh, you know, having cryopreservation or sperm bank, for instance, is there. You know, we have it and it's available. This journey can obviously affect Productivity at work and as I've alluded earlier about the fact that, you know, generally men are the providers. What, what, what does that do to a man's emotional well-being? Uh, well, they say men aren't emotional. We're just dumb. <laughs> but, but, but I think I think the emotional side is so important, and guys don't recognize that we 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 do need to have support. We do need to take our our general health and, and feelings importantly as well. Man can't cry and all that nonsense is just a waste of time. It just messes us up. But I think all, all of us, it doesn't matter which cancer we're involved in. We all find that's important. So I mean. Looking after, you know, all the men I do with uh, colorectal cancer, you know, fortunately many people are, are, are insured with some sort of dread disease cover so that if you are diagnosed with something nasty, that at least you've got some sort of income buffer while you're being treated. Because often if you are going through proper treatment with surgery, chemo, radiation for all these things, the amount it knocks you can be quite dramatic. And especially complications of surgery or of the treatment can can make things last any longer. And if you're able to insure yourself for for for, for dread diseases, you know, that's a very valuable thing. I can't think personally, as I'm thinking of talking of one patient who's lost his job because of a cancer diagnosis. Employers are understanding if the doctors write letters explaining the issue, when they'll be able to return to work, how their work life will need to be altered. Most people are understanding, you know, you know, South Africa is a country very short of skills. And if you have skills in the workplace, people will make an effort to, to, to retain you to understand. And often employers just want to know a timeline so that they can plan Accordingly, so it is very frightening, and the ability not to be able to work and earn an income and provide for a family is is, is significant. And if you can insure yourself for those dread diseases, how wonderful! But I must say, my experience with most employers is that if they understand the journey that the patient's going to take, they can be a lot more understanding. I mean, Shinga, you've mentioned the fact that men don't easily open up. So, how do I, as a woman, as a partner, get my partner who's going through this to open up to me and how do I give them the emotional support? I think we first have to recognize that guys, we've got our problems. We've got issues about so many things. Some of the stuff that we, we stress about, I mean like one of the biggest issues for most of my, a lot of patients come even for you Evelyn is that, oh my penis is, is too small. And we've asked them how many penises have you seen in your life? And they oh no I've seen 10. How are you going to know how are you going to judge? We're making judgments on things which are not logical. So I think as a partner, if you first of all recognize that 
not as a, but generally guys, even we're not that logical when it comes to stuff. Females see their, their healthcare providers five times more in their life. That's why one of the many reasons why females have uh, six years extra for life in general. If you are worried, you've seen your, your partner is not doing the right things, not exercising a little bit, not eating properly. That's like, talk to him. After that, say, listen, I've gone for, for example, my, 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 my speculum. That's a, a metal tube that they put into the vagina to look for cervical cancer. That's so uncomfortable, but women get their pap smears done all the time. Come and get yourself checked out. It's not difficult. We just do a stool sample, rectal examination for prostate cancer. Very simple. Don't be messing around because what you're going to do, you, if you, as a, if the partner sees that the, that the, their, their, their man is not going to be able to be around for a long time, explain to him, you're not going to see your children. You're not going to be able to play your golf ever again. You're not going to live to the point where we can actually enjoy our retirement. I think the partner makes such a big difference to, to, to the control, to the treatment for patients, males especially. I think just thanks, Chengai, for actually clarifying that. Uh, to add on it is, Remember with medicine, with the softer side, you know, of medicine, which is added on now, then, you know, in the past it would be this, that, that, like the doctor more being more of, you know, like a paternal role. It's not like that. This is tailored kind of approach. We will not run when the person is walking. So that is very important to be aware of. So as a partner, knowledge is power. It makes a big difference. Being able to look at what, what are the loopholes, you know, like diet. You know, like exercising, because who usually buys groceries in the average, you know, household, you know, although now we know we've got single, you know, households, which is still, you know, important, but it's very important when you, the person is concerned to be involved on smaller aspects, you know, like diet, exercising, dental checkup, the same as, you know, checkup for other things. So it is important when that role is being played in an active way, it's difficult for somebody to say no. When they are being cared for. That's true. And now just to jump on quickly, Evelyn, is that we must also, we've been very gender biased a little bit here, but remember, there are a lot of, the large proportion of our population is, uh, have, have a different sexual, they're either going out with guys or whatever they think. The reality is that all of us, no matter what your sexual preferences, need to be checked out, and all of us can be treated appropriately. And I think with you know this lack of gender-based violence that we're trying to push for, yes. I think in the future we must recognize that everybody, whether it be the partner might be man, might be whatever. I think we need to just keep in mind, especially for some of our healthcare colleagues, that everyone's different when it comes to that. We when, when people Google things, they they'll get a lot of American and British mm-hmm. European information. And, you know, some people might say, well, what's the difference between us and them? People may get advice in South Africa that's different from what they'll see on, on, on Google. And South Africans have a very unique genetic makeup and a very unique socioeconomic makeup that makes a lot of our rules of how we treat our patients different from maybe what people are looking up when they Google things and it's an understanding of our local situation, as Evelyn mentioned about individualizing things to, to South Africa. And, um, I think people need to still feel confident in their medical providers, even if they're not sticking with what uh, Dr. Google has said, because mm-hmm. there are unique considerations to how we approach, um, these things in South Africa. And, and what, what resources are there available that you would recommend for men? Uh, I think first of all, the, the important thing is to 
look at yourself first of all and just change your mindset as a guy. When it comes to screening checks and treatments, remember we do have a public and a private healthcare system here. The public healthcare system is also very well adapted to treating patients. We've also even without uh, dread disease, there's the social security services. Guys should not be too stressed about getting themselves checked, whether they're in private or in, or in public. And it's really about empowering ourselves. And the, like you were saying earlier, is that we need to get our partners involved as well. Other people, even our friends, even though most of my friends will, will give me more problems than anything else. But I think the, the thing is that we just need to remember that everyone's got an, an opportunity to get themselves che- checked for cancer. And I mean, when talking about where, who are you, also where are you geographically? Mm. You know, looking at the available, whether it's a clinic or, you know, healthcare, like, you know, what is interesting with our country now, we've got different levels of care. And it's, the idea is accessible healthcare. That is the biggest motto, you know, from a department of health. So look at where you are geographically, who's the nearest, because we don't want to end up being, you know, checked and not complying because mm. of the distance, for instance. Exactly. So someone can go to a clinic in a, Fairly remote thing and saying, please, you know, do a rectal examination, do a, do a stool test for blood in, in a, in a main. They can ask those things. It's not unreasonable. And if people have access, you know, in a small town or a major city, there are enough doctors around who can, you know, GPs and specialists who can guide you accordingly. There's, it, it may be if you're a little bit more rural, it's a little bit more effort. You need to sort yourself out rather than you are being sorted out, but the, the resources of their, you know, as long as you say please. <laughs> and, and, and just, just to add on that and write a list of things that are concerning you before you see your, you see your healthcare giver. Because it's easy to be swayed. Go there with a little, I get so impressed when somebody comes with a, you know, in the diary or on the phone and saying, Oh, doc, by the way, I've got this concern. I'm concerned about this and this. I was surprised. Can you please clarify? Because mm. during the consultation, it's easy to forget what are the other things that you were worried about. Own your health. That's right. Dr. Moshokwa, Professor Mutambira, Dr. Lutron, thank you so much for sharing your insights with us. Who knows how many men's lives will save through today's discussion? We've been talking all about cancers that affect men. To listen to all the episodes in our 10 part oncology podcast series, go to discovery.co.za forward slash corporate forward slash podcasts. In our next episode, we will explore cancer and your financial well-being with must-know tips from a certified financial advisor as well as a medical doctor, all brought to you by Discovery. This is cliffcentral.com.